0: I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Guys, welcome back to Boston Confidential. Just some housekeeping stuff before we get started. If you ever need to get a hold of me, the best way is email, and that email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. That's Barry at bostonconfidential.net, and I try to get back to people as quickly as possible. I received several emails, maybe 25 emails on our last episode on Jeffrey Curley. It really touched a chord with people, and I knew it would. It's one of the reasons I put off doing it. It's a highly emotional case, what they did to 10-year-old Jeffrey Curley in 1997, and these guys are still among us. We're still paying for their care was still basically wiping their buttocks. And it just grates on me, guys. It just does. And as I mentioned, Sal Sicari will never be up for parole, but Charles James got convicted of second-degree murder. I don't believe he'll ever get out of prison. You never know in Massachusetts, right, how the parole board sees things, but I'm pretty confident he won't get out. But the Curley family has to go to these parole hearings, and the first one was in 2020. And I think you have five or six years in between, so they just have to keep going through it. It's not fair. All fairness is directed towards the defendant in Massachusetts and not towards the family. I just don't agree with that. Some of the emails I received had apologized for not being able to get through the episode. Guys, I certainly understand that. This is a harrowing episode, and it involves some of the worst things that humans can do to each other. But I know Jeffrey Curley's in heaven, and I wish I could say these two, Sal Sicari and Charles James, were in hell. They're not. Charles James is in medium security prison at the Oak Colony Correctional Center in Bridgewater. And if you think he's busting rocks there every day, he is not. And I reported something strange last week as well. Sal Sicari is serving his time in Florida, and I don't know what that is all about, Sometimes what happens is states have compacts. They can trade inmates, basically. You take two of ours, we'll take one of yours and hold one in abeyance, right? So being transferred to Florida, it kind of gives me a bit of a smile. It's got to be tougher in Florida prison than in here in Massachusetts, because he'd be right in the old colony correctional facility with Charles James, having their lifers party at Christmas and dancing around in their underwear. So. Maybe that's a good thing. Also, I mentioned last week, guys, I'm kind of mystified by something. The Jeffrey Curley case, this was a crappy plan. The South Boston condo murders, horrendous plan. And is there a word for that? You know, I have a degree in sociology. I mentioned that before. But is there a criminal justice moniker we can put on these? Because it's just so asinine, right? Another case that comes to mind is the Amy Lord murder case. That guy had done that so many times, right, and hadn't been caught. And that was on the police, no doubt. But his plan was to just go beat and murder women coming out of the house. A lot of these most heinous crimes just seem to really have no basic plan to get away. The crime in itself is the end, it appears. But I'm just asking anybody if they know, is there a word for that? Also, I have another request of the Boston Confidential audience. To my followers in the corrections field, to my corrections officers and frontline supervisors, I want to know what's going on in the old colony correctional facility. What day-to-day life is like in that prison. If somebody can email me at barry at bostonconfidential.net, I'd like a little play-by-play. And I will keep you anonymous all the way up to the time you say you don't have to be anonymous. I'd also like a corrections officer to come on the show so I can ask some questions about the prison system in Massachusetts. I'm kind of ignorant on the prison system here in Massachusetts and everywhere, really. And I'm just vexed by it. I hear how easy it is to do time in Massachusetts, and I want to know if that's true. Now, it may be better if you're retired or close to retirement, but I know there's some brave guys out there. There's some union guys out there who can't really be touched for speaking their mind. Other line officers have to be careful. I realize that in totality. All right, guys, that's your homework assignment. I had given you that other homework assignment to watch Trial 4, and most of you passed with flying colors. Now, get me a corrections officer who can speak on the record or off the record. No worries. All right, guys, we're going to get to it. We're jumping from one horrific case to another. This one also happened in the 90s at the beginning of the decade, and it was Halloween night, October 31st, 1990, and the setting was Talbot Ave and Franklin Field. Franklin Field was adjacent to a mega-sized public housing project also called Franklin Field. And there was a gang, there was actually several gangs back then, but the gang that was involved in this horrific episode, and I should probably give another reminder that this podcast, this specific one, contains some harrowing information of sexual violence, and it is harrowing, guys, so there's your warning. So the Franklin Field Project is a high crime, high drug area, and it always has been but specifically in the 1990s, I believe that in this portion of the 90s, right at the beginning of the decade, the Boston police for years had somehow wanted to deny the fact that there were organized gangs in the city of Boston. And by the time they did admit to this fact, these gangs were entrenched. It was just crazy. I didn't understand the logic behind denying that when everybody could see it. And even their own cops there, members of the union or whatever, were saying these are organized gangs. And one of these gangs was the Pistons in the Franklin Field Project in Dorchester, Massachusetts. I'm not sure if it came later. There was also another gang in Franklin Field called the Franklin Field Giants. And just in that area, I mean, there was several gangs. Orchard Park had a big gang. There was a gang called the Big Head Boys. The most famous street gang in that area was probably the Interville Street Posse, they used to call themselves. And man, they shot up the city and they shot up that neighborhood like you wouldn't believe. So just trying to set the tone for the 1990s in Boston, and you know, this is right at the beginning of the decade, but 1990 was one of the most violent years on record. And I believe it was the most violent year on record since like 1973 in 1990, there were about 150-some-odd homicides, and that's a huge number for the city of Boston. We have crime. We have violent crime. But murders, I don't know. I don't want to say they're relatively rare, but it's not like Chicago. It's not like New York or Atlanta, or at least Atlanta right now. So it was alarming, and crime was spiking, and that was a fact. Things were so bad that in the housing projects of Boston, people were accusing the Boston police of not even answering their calls in these housing developments anymore. And there was a housing police department, but it was very small. and They just couldn't make a dent in the level of crime in all of these housing projects. For a serious amount of time, the Boston police were kind of just in a corral mentality in terms of the housing projects, especially in Dorchester. And by corralling, I mean just keep the crime within these developments, and that way we can keep everybody else safe. It was haphazard and crappy logic, quite frankly, but that was the deal back then. It just was. What a lot of people don't know about that area, Talbot Ave and Franklin Field, in some areas near Franklin Park, which is just a little bit a ways, is it is a stroll for prostitution. And that played a part in what happened on this Halloween night, October 31st, 1990. And this happened to Kimberly Ray Harbour and her friend Linda. Something else that I think people need to be reminded of is what things were like during this crack epidemic. Right now we're going through an opioid crisis, but crack was king in every urban area, really. This was the height of the crack epidemic, And one thing that differentiates the crack epidemic versus the opioid crisis is the crack epidemic brought with it a hell of a lot of violence, you know, from dealers and the people who use crack. It makes you violent, it makes you crazy. heroin or whatever other opiate you're using, it's a depressant. And they'll steal to get to feed their habit, don't get me wrong. But they're usually not super violent. Crack, on the other hand, is a different animal. Both poisonous, don't get me wrong. But crack made people violent. And believe me, that's an understatement. I'm telling you this story about how violent it was. And believe me, you're underestimating it. It was a tough time. I guess we might as well just get to the night of the crime, and then after that, I'll get into Kimberly Ray Harbour's family life and what led her to the field that night. And believe me, none of it is good. But it's Halloween night, 1990, in the Franklin Field housing projects in Dorchester. Several members of the Pistons gang soon arrive at the leader's house. I guess he's some type of gang leader, or he was. His name is William Corey James, age 20 at that time. And with them, they bring a case of Heffenreffer, private stock, 40-ounce beers. If you remember those, they had the big heavy bottles, said private stock on them. A lot of people were drinking them back in the day. It was kind of a heavy lager. I didn't really like it back then. But I think they had these riddles on the reverse side of the cap as well. But that being here nor there. So there was William Corey James, he was 20, Terrence Wade, age 18, Michael Williams, 16, Anthony Ayala, 16, Ezekiel Hogan, age 15, and David Sampson, age 16. They're all members of this gang. There's reports that previously they were trying to attend a party at the teen center near the housing project, and that was canceled. It's Halloween. There's all kinds of things going on in the city. People were trick-or-treating and whatnot. So they get a case of Heff and Ref a private stock and they hit Corey James's apartment within the Franklin Field development. So I've heard varying reports about how long they were drinking at Corey James's residence at his apartment. I've heard it ranged from a half hour to two hours. So they had a case of beer with them, but they were the 40 ounces, so. I don't know how drunk these kids were, but they had been drinking. They leave Corey James's apartment. They say in search of another party, one of these juveniles, or a couple of them say in their interviews later, that they were looking to rob prostitutes. And a lot of people from outside of Boston don't realize this, but Talbot Ave, right where it intersects with Franklin Field there, it's a pretty common area for streetwalkers all hours of the day, really. So as they exit the apartment, they're walking towards Franklin Field in the area of Talbot Ave, and they see two women. The two women notice them as well. This was Kimberly Ray Harbor and her friend Linda Peterson. I've heard her described as being named Laura and Linda, but I believe it is Linda because I took that from the court record, but I wasn't sure on the last name. So we're going to go with Linda, Linda Peterson. So I believe those two women were working the stroll that Halloween night. They see this gang, this big gang of men, and they're eyeing them. And so they try to walk away quickly. They go in the opposite direction. But now the gang starts to chase them. The women scream and try to run away. And they separate. One group goes after Linda, and they hit her with a tree limb right in the head. So they hit her with this tree limb more than once, and they rob her. They go through her pockets. They don't have much money. Both Kimberly Ray Harbor and Linda had substance abuse issues. And for anybody to think that anybody in the neighborhood would have money, it probably wouldn't be them. But these kids were on a wilding spree, and that's what they'd end up calling it later. Wilding was a term used in the 90s. And it's just horrible. But I'll tell you about Wilding a little bit after. I just want to get through the story here. So that group assaults Linda and goes through her pockets and takes whatever she has. She doesn't have anything. And they decide to move on pretty quickly. And now they run up to the group that had chased Kimberly Ray Harbour. And they all caught up with her. And Linda could hear her friend screaming for help, saying, I've got a daughter. Let me go. And then she could see the men who had now all massed on Kimberly Ray Harbour. Kimberly Ray Harbour was being kicked, and there was nothing Linda could do with it. This was just a crazy scene out of nowhere for no reason. And it just got continually worse. They savaged this poor woman for no reason, and she was begging them, trying to run away. She ran away twice trying to get away from these maniacs that kick her, punch her and hit her with that tree limb that they had hit Linda with as well. So at that point, they lift Kimberly Ray Harbour up. They're carrying her now, and they take her to a remote part of Franklin Field. And at that point, Corey James was the first one to rape her. And then six of the eight gang members proceeded to sexually penetrate her against her will. In this portion of the testimony, I'm reading right now, comes from the court record, and it comes directly from one of the juveniles who turned state's evidence. While this poor woman was being raped, she was also being kicked in the face. One of the defendants, Che Barnes, C-H-E Barnes, took a Heffernreff bottle and smashed it over her face. And if you've ever felt one of these bottles, I mean, just a 12-ounce bottle of Heffernreff is one thing. I believe these were 40 ounces smashed it over Kimberly Ray Harbor's face, and it broke on impact. And it's just crazy. And the term wilding really applies here. I would say it's like a pack of wild animals, but that would be an insult to animals, because at least they're trying to eat. These people were just trying to inflict damage on this poor woman. It was crazy. They also went through her pockets, and Kimberly Ray Harbor had $1 to her name, and they took it from her and then they desecrated her. The eyewitness further reported that William Corey James was the first one to use a knife on her. He began using what they call a 007 knife, and he slashed her, and he stabbed her. Others would join in with their knives as well. Forensics would later report that at least two different knives were used in one broken beer bottle. I had also heard afterwards, I don't know if it had ever been completely confirmed that they used the branch that they originally hit Linda with on Kimberly Ray Harbor's vaginal area. I don't know if that's true. It wouldn't surprise me for a minute, but it does seem to be a stretch, right? But the whole thing does. This savage attack went on for 30 minutes or more. All the while, Kimberly Ray Harbour was begging for her life, telling them, I'm a mother just like your mother. Leave me alone. At a certain point, the witness stated that Kimberly Ray stated, I'll take care of all of you. And by that, she meant sexually she would have taken on, what, eight, nine guys at this point, just to have her life spared. As this savage attack wound down, This group was walking away, and they wanted to make sure she was dead. They were arguing amongst themselves, and William Corey James turns around and runs at Kimberly Ray Harbour and jumps onto her back, and Kimberly Ray Harbour lets out a scream, letting them know that she's still alive. Can you imagine that? So these brave young men walk away from the woman they just stomped to death. But she was still alive, but they left her there. They left her there to die overnight. And that's exactly what happened. She was discovered the next morning dead in the field. Then they all walked back to the projects where they lived. Where they lived with Kimberly Ray Harbert. They were neighbors. They knew each other. This is absolutely insane. The investigation would later reveal that she had been stabbed 132 times. She had been stomped countless times, jabbed, everything. But if she had went to the hospital, I mean, she was like three minutes from Boston City Hospital in those days, and probably even closer, maybe to the Faulkner Hospital on American Legion Highway in West Roxbury. She could have been saved, guys. That's what I'm saying. They would talk amongst themselves while well, they're stabbing her. It's just hard to believe, but they're saying, look how she slices, and then that slicer. It was brutal. It was like almost Nazi-like what these kids did to her. And one of the most psychopathic aspects of this, they do all of this nastiness, and then they just go home. And then they wake up the next day, and they're looking for the Cocoa Krispies. It's crazy. The ultimate cause of death was blood loss. Like I said, she could have been saved if somebody had just, one of these kids had even a modicum of a conscience. Jeez. All these young kids, I mean, nobody can call 911 for this girl. They all knew her. She did nothing to them, not a goddamn thing. So the next day, the detectives are horrified. She had been beaten at least 18 times, the coroner said. And as I mentioned before, 132 knife wounds, slices, slashes, deep penetrations. And the coroner would go on to say that she did all of this while struggling. She was always just trying to get away. Why not just let her go? You gotta say, you know, this isn't a girl who's probably gonna go to the police, you know? She knows the streets. They just didn't care. They saw her as less than human. They went home, made a cheeseburger, went to bed. Absolutely insane. So the investigation ramps up pretty quickly. And again, another crappy plan here, and we're looking for that word, right? And there's a crap ton of evidence at the scene the tree branch, there's a broken condom, there's fragments of clothing that large tree branch that was used against both women. But to be quite honest, the police didn't report the heinous nature of this crime, just not yet. They're right on the heels of the Carol Stewart case, I think happened just before this. And the department was still reeling and had some really sore spots and bad feelings from the neighborhood. And they were trying to counteract that with a good investigation in this case. And I think ultimately they'd do that but they kept it very hush hush. And that's the way good investigations really go. If you don't need assistance from the press, you got to work the people involved rather than worrying about news conferences and everything else. So I think the police picked this up pretty quickly and they had a crap ton of evidence. And pretty soon I think they came upon Linda Peterson. So that kind of blew the case wide open because she also knew these kids. And don't forget, these kids didn't attempt to flee, they went home, they didn't give a crap. They just didn't give a crap, they just went home and that was it. So search warrants naturally came up pretty quickly. At James's residence, at Corey James's house, one of the knives was found. In Che Garcia's residence, another one of those knives were found, it was the 007. And this gang was known for carrying these 007 knives. They used to call them Rambo knives. I think it's the same concept. Big hunting knife, really. So almost to a man, these kids start talking to the police and variations of the truth come out. And the detectives, I think the biggest problem in this case was sorting out who was BSing you more than somebody else. And there were so many defendants. I think they started to play, hey, Terrence Wade just told us this about you there, Ezekiel Hogan. We need to know the truth here. So I think they did some good detective work to get a chronology of events, and they did that pretty well. And at a certain point as the investigation progressed, Michael Williams, one of the juveniles, they made a deal with him. This had to be a race to the district attorney's office. The kid got a deal where he'd be prosecuted as a juvenile rather than as an adult, because the adults were facing life in prison, the majority of them. So six of the eight were charged with murder and aggravated rape. The two that did not rape Kimberly Ray Harbor were charged with murder and a host of lesser accounts, assault and battery, dangerous weapon, the whole nine yards. So these kids were pretty well hemmed up. So as I mentioned, this had just come on the heels of the Carol Stewart murder, where the Boston police were eviscerated for turning a black neighborhood in Mission Hill upside down again i have misgivings about that perspective because in that case the medical doctors told the detectives that charles stewart could not have shot himself and so when charles stewart is telling that story that a black man shot my wife and i when we left lamar's class that tends to give that story some credibility if the doctor says he shot himself right so i think i'm kind of alone on that one So the cops needed a good investigation, and they got one. And it happened pretty quickly. But the black community was upset again because when it came out how heinous this was, I think it was six or seven days that they kept this under wraps, that the black community went nuts because they're saying, these kids could have done this to somebody else again. And I think that's certainly a credible theory. But the police were in a no-win situation. They had this investigative momentum. And to keep the looky-loos in the media off their backs, I think they did a good job and were able to focus on arresting the right people. And they did just that. But they got no applause. They usually never do. I think they did an excellent job in this case. But you have to look at it with hindsight. So just to put this case in perspective, today's perspective, what would you do with these kids who savaged this woman? Right? They used a tree branch on her, knives. They all kicked her. More than half of them raped her. And there's this growing coalition to do away with prisons, do away with the police. What would happen with these kids? So when this hit the press, it hit the press with a bang. Let me tell you, this was wall to wall coverage. Nobody in Massachusetts, and this was nationwide coverage as well, could believe the atrocities inflicted on this young woman by people so young, so many of them. Again, it was during this time where Wilding was coming into the urban lexicon. And Wilding, as it was described, is your gang, just like these Pistons, the Franklin Field Pistons, just go, I don't know another word, just go shithouse on people. I think it started with the Central Park Five. That's what those kids were doing when that woman in Central Park, the investment banker, was beaten to near death. Those kids were innocent of that rape, believe it or not, but they were out wilding, and that's how they got picked up. That's what people forget about that Central Park 5 case. Those kids were wilding in the park. And what that consisted of is just basically a rampaging gang that beat, rape, you know, sexually assault anybody they came across. They were looking to fight you. You're out with your kids. They're going to punch you in the face in front of your kids. You're a woman. They may try to rape you. They may grab your breasts, your buttocks. That was wilding. A gang taking over a certain area. Basically, law of the jungle. And I think that's certainly what happened in Franklin Field. When young men get together in this gang atmosphere, and you throw alcohol into the mix, man, it's just crazy what happened. I don't know how this happened. I don't think these kids would have done half of this by themselves or if there's two of them, but there's so many of them, it seemed like they were trying to outdo each other. And the inhumanity was just insane, like I said before. It's almost Nazi-like torture here. And these people, they were neighbors. They saw her as subhuman for some reason. She had a crack problem. That's true. So did Linda. So did a lot of people in the projects. And they did walk the streets, and that's how they made their money. But Kimberly Ray was a mother of a seven-year-old kid. She was a former census worker. And I remember seeing her father on the news. I can't imagine that growing up there was easy. I can't imagine that she had a good home life. But... Damn, this father was heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken. You don't hear much about him. That may be intentional. Sometimes I don't want to get into family stuff if they don't want this aired out in public. The guy was just devastated. I didn't see anything about the mother. I don't know if she predeceased Kimberly Ray. If so, Kimberly Ray I had somebody to welcome her into heaven, I think. But geez. Man, the savagery involved in this gang thing, I think it's kind of a testosterone thing, fed by alcohol. So the city of Boston was reeling with this news and just horrified all communities, black community, white community, Asian, Hispanic, everybody was absolutely horrified. It stopped the city in its tracks, and it kind of highlighted the problems in some of these projects where there just was really no law enforcement. So just to be able to do that on the street, eight, nine people attacking two and carrying one away like it's into the wilderness. You know, it's like 1800s days. They just grabbed this woman, took her and did what they wanted to her and discarded her. But they knew her. That was their neighbors. So these guys, pretty quickly, they get rounded up. And I think to a man I had mentioned before, they had given some type of statements and the police constructed a a narrative of what happened. And some of these kids ended up doing life a lot of time. And Michael Williams was one of the juveniles, and I think I had mentioned him earlier. He turned state's evidence, so his case stayed in juvenile court, and he testified against everybody else. I think he got a plea deal, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you're making a deal with the devil here but you need somebody to testify. It's kind of like John Materano and the Winter Hill Gang. You don't want to use somebody who's killed 20 people, but you got to use somebody against Whitey Bulger who's killed 120 people, right? So everybody, I believe, was found guilty in this case. Some counts were dismissed, altered, or whatever else. But Corey James Kind of the leader in all this. That's where they started their night, and he jumped on her back. He was convicted of first-degree homicide, aggravated rape, and you know a couple dozen lesser counts. Carlos Garcia was also convicted in this case: first-degree homicide, aggravated rape. And Che Barnes, he was 17 at the time. I can't remember if you were considered a juvenile. I think you aged out at 16 in 1990. So he may have been charged as an adult. Che Bonds was sentenced to 40 to 60 years in prison. And those were two sentences, and they were going to run concurrently, basically at the same time. Some good news on Mr. Bonds. I had recently read an article, and I had it in my research here somewhere, that while he was in Sousa Baranowski, that's big boy prison in Massachusetts for people who can't behave, he assaulted two guards and got about 10 or 15 years in prison on and after that 40 to 60 years. So he's never getting out. He deserves every day of it and then some. This should have been a death penalty case. I believe all the juveniles were tried as adults at that time, and they were giving life without parole, some of them. I'm not going to get into all of their sentences. There's just too many. But that was changed, don't forget, by the Supreme Court relatively recently in the 2010s where you could not give a juvenile a life sentence with no possibility for parole. So what happens is that they end up resentencing them and they're supposed to get a meaningful opportunity for parole. That's what the new statute says. Ezekiel Hogan, he was 15. Ezekiel Hogan, he got life without parole plus 20 years. That was changed He's serving some type of life or close to life now, and he's changed his name to a Muslim name now. And I'm not exactly sure. I know Michael Williams was tried as a juvenile, and I think he did about a year, year and a half in the Department of Youth Services. The other kids I don't really know about, how do you recover from that? Even if you're a juvenile and you're released from prison, that's on your name. Don't tell me that's not on your soul. But do they care? Does Corey James care about what he did when he jumped on her back, and then they all left her to die? Imagine being the defendant's parents, right? You raise these kids I don't want to call them animals, but it's hard not to. You raise these kids, and by themselves, I don't think any of them would have done it. But together as a drunken group, man, what a frenzy, what a frenzy. And you're the dad. How do you say? yeah, that's my kid. Or do you defend them? Do you not believe it? What do you do? And then to be Kimberly Ray Harbor's dad, who was just broken by this. He was a broken man at court. He could see it. All of it is just so unnecessary. These two women were just walking down the street. Yeah. Did they have some type of ulterior motive to be on the street at that hour? Sure they did. But were they harming those kids? Were they harming them? Were they bothering them? They would just pray to these jackals. Man, it's crazy. I'd love to see some type of follow-up. You never see a Netflix series on this. Follow up on these kids and tell us what the hell happened here. The speculation on TV was too much alcohol, too much testosterone, too much violence from an urban neighborhood. I know none of these kids had it easy. Kimberly Ray Harbor didn't have it easy either, though, right? And she didn't savage anybody. And I don't know. It's just the kind of a tale of misery all the way through. It's like a sociological case study, you know? All right, guys, I think I'm going to leave you there. Remember your homework assignment. I need to speak to a corrections officer because I just need to know the levels of prison here, especially O'Colony Correctional Center, whatever the hell it is. They used to call it Bridgewater. But I just want to know what it's like there because. I see all these murderers go there. Charles James, a host of other maniacs. I, I wanna know what the hell they do all day. Is this hard time? Is it even punishment? So give me a buzz at Barry at Boston dot net. That's Barry at Boston dot net. I'd love to hear from COs, frontline supervisors and all that. I'll keep you anonymous until you tell me I don't have to keep you anonymous, but That's what I need. That's your homework assignment. And I'll see you on the flip side, guys.